I'm wondering if you've had the same experience that I've had many times in my life. It's that moment when you realize you've missed it. You missed it. You realize that what you thought you understood, you really didn't understand it at all. In, f- in fact, not only did you not understand it, but you, you, were, you were way off. Am I the only one or has that happened to anybody else in the room? Three of you. Wonderful. Okay. <clears throat> it can easily happen in a um, husband and wife relationship, right? Look straight ahead. Don't. That's because men and women process things differently. <laughs> yes, amen. Thank you, sister. And men and women express things differently. Amen? How many of you husbands say, if I'm honest today, I've missed it a few times? It can happen in an employer-employee relationship where you thought you knew what your boss wanted, or what would please them, and yet somehow you missed it. You were so far off. You made a decision or you took action on something based upon your reasoning that seemed so right, or your experience, or your idea, or, or your value system, only to, to discover that the other person or your employer didn't see it that way at all. In fact, They made their judgment on the issue or the situation from a completely different value system. Or maybe, uh, maybe for you it was like me when being discipled by someone. You thought you knew and understood the ways of God. You thought you knew what the right thing was to do in a certain given circumstance. You thought your, ju- your judgment, your determination, your conclusion about the matter was the correct one, only to get with your mentor or, or whomever is, uh, is discipling you, and you find out that you missed it. And your mentor is just as surprised as, as you are. I know, I know well what it is to walk into a meeting where I'm coming in with my decision about how something should go. I've got it all thought through. I know exactly what should happen here, and I'm ready to share that. Only thank God before I do, only to hear Pastor Des have a completely different idea, completely different take on the matter, and I sit there in amazement that I never saw it that way. How did I miss that? How did I miss it? And if I'm lucky... I, I, was, I had not been up to that point the first person to blurt out what I thought the right idea was before he then expressed his very godly, righteous opinion about it. And so then I could just nod and say, yes, isn't that right? Isn't, don't you think he's right about that? Yes, I do too. But I had missed it. So far off, not even close. <clears throat> well, there's a story in the Gospels expressed in Matthew Mark and Luke, where this very thing happens. You've probably guessed it by now. The disciples have one view of the circumstance and something that takes place, and Jesus has a completely different view. And the disciples are so far off. They're nowhere close. And so when you read this story in the synoptic gospels, and you recognize this 
disparity between Jesus and the disciples who had been so closely associated with Him and and spent so much time with Him over the three-year period, you have to ask yourself. When you read it, 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 there's just a convicting power to it. You have to say, Lord, have I missed it? Is there something that got formed in me some opinion, some stance, some position that got formed in me that was based on my Christian culturalism and, and not really based truly upon the Word of God or not based upon my relationship with you and understanding who you really are and your character and your ways of doing things. Do, do you, Lord, have a completely different viewpoint on a critical matter in my life than one that I'm holding to? And what's even probably more troubling is to take it to the the next level of thought, which is this. Is it possible that I have gone all these decades in my Christian walk and completely misunderstood something? Isn't it funny how two people can see exactly the same thing and have two completely different views about it? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26, please. The book of Matthew, chapter 26. You'll immediately recognize this story. But let's read it and let's see if there is some encouragement this morning from this passage. How many would like to be encouraged today? Say amen. Amen. Good. Matthew 26, starting with verse 6. Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with the beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over his head. The disciples, though, they were indignant when they saw this. And what did they say? They said, what a waste, the disciples said. It could have been sold for, for, a, for a high price and the money given to the poor. What were they doing? They're defending their position. And can't we all do that? Aren't we great at that? I am. Great at defending your position. Oh, what should have happened? And it sounds so good. It sounds so spiritual. And it sounds so righteous. It could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Yes. But Jesus, aware of this, replied, Why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing to me? You're going to have the poor among you always. But you will not always have me. She has poured this perfume on me to prepare me for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. And then just one more thought I'm using, looking at just the first part of verse 14, because it's going to be included in my thoughts this morning. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priests. We'll leave it there. Look at the disparity between the reaction of Jesus to the deed of the woman, juxtaposed to the reaction of the disciples. What did they say? They said, what a waste. Oh, my goodness, what a waste. Now, any of us raised in a good, conservative, prudent, frugal environment would probably have had the same reaction, wouldn't we? We would have. Oh, we don't waste stuff like that. My goodness, do you know the cost? Do you know the value of that? That's what we would have probably reaction, what our reaction would have been. 
But the reaction of Jesus was this. He said, this woman's deed will be remembered wherever the good news is preached throughout the world. How can you be that far off in your understanding after spending three years with the master? They call it a waste. Jesus calls it significant. They call it a waste. Jesus calls it, oh no, it's significant. And here was the conviction of my own heart. Years of being in church does not always mean that I see things the way Jesus does. Did everybody hear that? Balcony, did you hear that? Years of being in church, knowing the Christian culture, what to do, what to say, when to, all of that does not always mean that we see things the way that Jesus sees them. And I have to ask myself, what is taking place in my heart when I see something in a completely different way than Jesus does? Do I see the poor the way Jesus does? Do I see the beggar the way that Jesus does? Do I see anybody the way that Jesus does? So for just the remaining few minutes, let me bring you into my own it's kind of vulnerable, a little scary, but let me bring you into my own personal examination of my heart, and I do it for the purposes of maybe helping somebody else here today, see if there's something there for you. And it starts with humbling myself before the Lord and recognizing something that we all know, and that's this, that His ways are higher than our ways. Can I get an amen to that? His ways are higher than our ways. And then expressing my desire, Lord, I, I really want to see as you see. And then having to repent and saying, Lord, I'm sorry that after all these years of serving you, that I, I'm, not, I, I'm not closer to seeing things the way you do. So help me today, Lord, to be more like you. And I'm asking you, church, go with me on a journey for just a few minutes to see what Jesus saw in this circumstance. And maybe it will help us today. As every good sermon, I've got three points, okay? Here's number one if you're taking notes. Number one. I think what Jesus saw in the action of that woman that day looked a lot like what God the Father does. I think when Jesus observed what she was doing, even in the midst of everyone else having their reaction of, what a waste, I think what Jesus saw in the action of that woman looked a lot like the way God his Father does things. It looked familiar to him. So he saw it and something said, ah, ah, I recognize that. For he recognized his father in that action because it was a demonstration of the extravagance of God in giving. I can almost hear Jesus say this, oh, that looks just like the way my father would do something. Now here's what I mean by that. I can't believe it's here, but in just a few short weeks, we're going to be at the Christmas holiday. I don't even want to know if you've got your Christmas shopping done. I don't even want to know, okay? I checked out the statistics this week, and I discovered that most U.S. consumers spend an average of about $752 on Christmas gifts per year. That's the average. Now, you may spend a lot less than that, and that's fine, and you may spend a whole lot more than that, and, and that's fine. But that's, that's the, sort of the national average. The, now, the second most, um, uh, the, the holiday that we spend the second most amount of money, does anybody know what number two is? Mother's Day. 
It's Mother's Day. All right? And you know what, guys? You're not even on the list for Father's Day. Just forget about it, all right? You know what number three is? I'm sorry? Yes, it's in February. It's Valentine's Day. You know what the average cost of the gift on Valentine's Day is? Now, lady, this is where you have to look straight ahead. Ladies, every one of you, put your hands on your lap. Do not prepare to gouge your husband when I tell you this. Look straight ahead. Promise me. The average cost of the gift on Valentine's, the average amount of money spent on Valentine's Day in this country is $140. I'm sorry, guys. I'm really sorry. Some of you are upset because you're not even average. Well, <laughs> lady in the back, I see you pulling out your $20 Starbucks card and waving it. Show me this is what you got for Valentine's Day. Here's the deal. As good and as much as that is, that is not extravagance. What Jesus saw in the act of the woman was a reminder of him of what he sees his father do. Extravagance means to spare no expense. To spare no expense. It's a lack of restraint in using all of your resources for someone else. It's, it, it's, it's to be so elaborate that there is nothing held back. And can I just say it clearly today? This is the way that God gives to you and me. He holds nothing back for us. Hallelujah. Just look at what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8 when he says, Since he, God, did not spare even his own son but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Oh my goodness, he gave us his own son. That is the extravagance of God. Can I get anybody to agree with me today that our God is an extravagant God? God uses all of his resources and his power to bless you and to bless me and to blow us away with his incredible artistry and creativity. Talking about the extravagance of God here this morning, just for a moment, think of the extravagance of God in creation. What about the, when God creates, created the stars? You know, he could have said, okay, it's time to create the star." And he creates one. He could have put just one star out there and you and I would have been impressed that there's this amazing thing with light up in the sky. But he didn't create just one. And this next fact I'm going to give you is arguable and debatable depending upon who you believe. But the good average is this. He hangs a hundred billion stars. Not just one, but a hundred billion stars. Wouldn't a dozen have been okay? That would have been extravagant to me, but a hundred billion, and he knows them all by name. Sometimes Becky and I struggle to remember the names of our kids, and we have two. You ever had that happen at your house where you run down the whole list before you get to the person you're really, okay, Fido, Fluffy, Bugsy, uh, Shane, oh yeah, that, this one, yeah, and the, the kids, um, you know, this is me, mom, I'm, this, I'm right here. A hundred billion stars? That's the extravagance of God. And that's the way he works. All right, let's talk about insects. God just speaks and 10 million different species. 
not just 20 species or 30, 10 million different species of insects. Let's consider the ants. He has 2,500 different variations of ants. And I have all of them in my house, okay? 300,000 species of beetles. Are you kidding me? We need 300,000. And here's God's extravagance just in the United States. You know how many birds we have right now? There are 5 billion birds in the U.S. Some can fly 500 miles nonstop. A mallard duck can fly 60 miles per hour. An eagle can fly 100 miles per hour. A falcon, 180 miles per hour. God created some that can even navigate by the stars. There are about 10,000 species of birds and 28,000 species of fish. Church, only God could do that because he's an extravagant God. So here's my point. He is a God of extravagance. And that's what Jesus saw. When in creation, and all of those little facts that I just ran by you, that was God breaking the box of extravagance. Most of you will know the name Mother Teresa. There's an interesting story from her that elucidates this understanding of the extravagance of God. She writes this. She says, at a seminary in Bangalore, which is southern India, a nun once said to me, this is Mother Teresa speaking, she says, Mother Teresa, you are spoiling the poor people by giving them so many free things. You are making them lose their human dignity. And I think you know, many of us in the Western culture, we might even agree. We might say, you know, probably that's right. You can't just keep giving free stuff to people. They won't even, they won't even value it. But this was the response, her, her response. When everyone was quiet, Mother Teresa said calmly, no one spoils us as much as God himself. Look at all the wonderful gifts that he has given to us. And she stood before the group and she looked at the seminary students and she says this. She says, not one of you is wearing glasses and yet all of you can see. What if God would take money for your sight? What would happen? And then she said, all of you are living on and breathing oxygen that you don't even pay for. What would happen if God were to say, if you work for four hours, I'll give you sunshine for two hours. How many of us would survive then? And then she said this. There are many congregations that spoil the rich. Isn't it wonderful to have one congregation in the name of Jesus that will spoil the poor? Bam. I think she got it. And then she said, there was profound silence. No one said a word after that. The truth is, church, God blows us away with his extravagance. He has lavished himself extravagantly upon you and upon me. And I believe that's what Jesus saw. He saw this extravagance in the gift of this woman. He saw himself and he saw his father. And here is this woman who breaks through the norm. She didn't really follow the protocol. She went far beyond the customary procedure. Because the customary procedure, a situation like that would be this. Come into the house as a guest, you know, kind of break open the top of the box and lightly dip into the box and put a 
couple of drops of this extremely expensive perfume than on the host, or in this case, upon Jesus. Being careful not to waste it, you, you just very carefully open the top and, and, and you just put a couple of drops because it's terribly That's the norm because it's terribly expensive. And that should be enough to greet the person or to bless the person that you're wanting to acknowledge and bless and allow you to go in. But this lady breaks the custom. She said essentially this by her action, what we've read this morning, drops... You want me to just give drops? Forget about it. This is Jesus that I'm blessing today. Why would I give a couple of drops to the one who has extravagantly given to me? This is the one who has given me sight. This is the one who has given me life. This is the one who has given me the very air that I breathe. It's your breath in my lungs, so I pour out my praise. This is the one who has given me hope. Drops. You want me to give drops? I am not going to show up in his presence and just give him a couple of drops. I don't care how customary it is. So let's talk about what drops are. What's, um, what's drops? Well, it might sound like this. God, you're lucky I fought the traffic on I-35 and the construction to get to Bethesda today. There's a drop. Lord, I, uh, I even sang a little bit this morning when Pastor Brent was leading the song that I liked. There's a drop. It's customary. There's a drop. You know, Lord, a couple of weeks ago, I, I came to church, and I really got inspired, and I even, when I thought nobody was looking, I even, I even lifted one hand. And when I saw somebody looking, I just kind of scratched my ear. There's a drop. Lord, I know what I know what the customary thing is here. And I know that I come in here and I and they sing and they do whatever they do here on this platform and I stand up and I might clap a little and maybe I'll I'll raise my hand and, and then I sit down. That's what I do in Bethesda on Sunday morning. Drops. Those are drops. But I'm here to ask you today, every one of you in this house, from the balcony to the main floor, I wonder if there is anyone in this house this morning who is, didn't come in just to give drops to the Lord Jesus. Is there anybody in this house who said, no, I've come to pour my praise on him like oil from Mary's alabaster box. Don't be angry if I wash his feet with my tears and dry them with my, because you know what? You, don't, you weren't there the night Jesus found me. You weren't there. You didn't feel what I, you don't know how low I had sunk. You don't know how bad it really was. You weren't there. You didn't feel what I felt when he wrapped his loving arms around me. And guess what? You don't know the cost of the oil in my alabaster box. Why do the disciples not see this act of the woman as Jesus did? Because in it, Jesus saw his Father, who is extravagant in giving, who holds back nothing, who spared not even his own Son, so that today you and I might have eternal life. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Number two. What I think got the attention of Jesus was this. The woman 
was giving her best with nothing left. She was giving it all. She was giving her best with nothing left. When was the last time you gave to Jesus with nothing left? By the way, we're finished taking offerings for the morning, so you can relax about all that. There are boxes in the back as you leave today. When was the last time you gave to Jesus with nothing left? Nothing held in reserve for the next time. No holding back. Just giving it all. I love the people of Africa. I'm sure I've been influenced by the, it's either six or seven, I think, times that I've been there. Most of them were trips to produce missions, music videos for the Assemblies of God. If I remember right, I think it's four times to South Africa, Malawi, I've been there, Kenya, and the last was uh, three years ago this month, 2014, Shaler and I went to Tanzania, Tanzania, some of them say. And it went like this. I was invited by the most influential uh, general superintendent of the Assemblies of uh, Tanzania, Dr. Barnabas Mtokambali. Yes, the first syllable is M, Mtokambali. So we had our routing to get there, and then uh, we finally landed in the uh, capital city of Arusha. Stayed in a little hotel that night because at 6 o'clock the next morning we were leaving on a four-hour trip to go out into the bush where we were scheduled to preach at a pastor's conference for, for three days. Now let me tell you, explain that we got in this thing that kind of looked like an open-air Jeep Wrangler sort of. And we got in there and I'm knowing it's going to be four hours. At the end of the first hour I thought just let me walk from this point on. There wasn't really a road. The driver kind of knew the landscape and knew how to get there. It was over boulders and rocks, and I'm not sure what else we ran over. All kinds of stuff, and I, anything that could be shook got shook, let me just tell you. Everything was shaken within me. I literally thought at the end of the hour, I, I, I can't make it. So we get out to Babati, and uh, it's 10 o'clock, and the, there's a bunch of pastors already gathered in this, like an open-air tabernacle. And a very primitive situation, but delightful spirit. You could hear them worshiping as we, as we drove up. Well, let me explain how this pastor's conference goes. There's four services a day, okay? You don't know where the first one ends and the second one starts and the second one ends and the third. It just all runs together. And if you're responsible for preaching, if, to preach less than 60 or 75 minutes or an hour and 15 minutes is almost blasphemy to them. Four times a day. Hot. So let me just tell you this. I had a wonderful translator. Uh, his name was Pastor Timothy. Precious, precious, tall, slender, handsome African guy. And he was right, his heart was so tender. Sometimes I'd have to kind of give him a minute in the middle of translating because his heart would just fill up and he just couldn't hardly take it and he'd have to pull himself together. And after almost every message, and trust me, they weren't all that good, sometimes he would just go sit down and just and afterward and he would just put his head in his hands and just sob and sob and sob. Tender-hearted man. He was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. After the first day, there's gonna be three days of this, the first day, and let me tell you, in Africa, if you've ever been there, been to a service there, they make you not just preach, you pa-reach, okay? 
they're like on their feet. They're like walking down the front. They are like pulling it out of you. You've been there, Josh. You know what that's. They are literally pulling it out of you. And if you can't preach in that environment, you just can't preach. I got to be honest with you. I don't know if I ever told you this. That was in September of 2014. After doing that for three days, and I fly back to the United States, came to Fort Worth, Texas, you guys look like the biggest bunch of deadheads I'd ever seen in my life. Sorry, I, I. So I preached and preached and preached and preached. <clears throat> and at the end of that day, was driven to this little um, hotel that had a, I had a room with a bed and it had a net over it to keep the mosquitoes off that night. You know how that goes. And so I literally remember that night falling into that bed after the first night. Now, that's the same day that I had the four-hour, you know, over-the-rocks journey to get out there. And I fell in that bed late that night, and I remember saying this, God, I have nothing left, nothing. I have emptied myself completely. I have preached from Genesis to Revelation in one day. There are no more sermons left on the planet to be preached, there is nothing left within me. I have no more strength. I have no more voice left. I have nothing. There is nothing there. And I have to tell you, it was in that very instance that this song that I had, Jovan, came to me. I've just come to pour my praise on you. Like oil from Mary's alabaster box. And then it went from that to a song that was sung by Steve Green back in the late 80s, early 90s where it was taken from the same passage of Scripture where he said, broken and spilled out just for love of you, Jesus, my most precious treasure, which is everything that I have. I have emptied myself here in this place. And this is just day one. I've got two more days of this. What am I going to do? I have emptied myself Broken and spilled out and poured at your feet in sweet abandon. Let me be spilled out and used up for thee. Bethesda, I'm going to ask you this very pointed question today. When was the last time you came to church and said, you know what? Today he gets everything. I'm going into the Holy of Holies today. I am giving it all, and I'm holding nothing back. He gets my hands. He gets my feet. He gets my voice. He gets my shout. He gets my heart. He gets my mind. Everything that I have, it's all His today. I'm focusing everything on him. The phone gets put away. I'm not going to, there's nobody I need to text in this moment that's more important than him. I don't need to be on Facebook right now. There's nothing else that's more important than giving him everything that I have. No energies anywhere except unto him. Let me tell you why, church. Because he's the one who saved you. He's the one who delivered you. He's the one who has healed you time and time again. He's the one who brought you out of darkness into marvelous light. Why wouldn't you give him everything? with nothing held back. When was the last time you lingered in his presence and just lost it all for him? You don't have to dig too deep into the study of this passage to learn what the value was of this expensive perfume. Any study you do of it would tell you that the alabaster box of perfume was worth over 300 denarii, or a year's wage. So, just to bring it to us today, let's put it into perspective. 
let's, let's, uh, let's take an average salary in Fort Worth. Let's put it at roughly $40,000. I don't know. I didn't research that, but I'm going to give a guess. <clears throat> Can you imagine someone walking into the room where Jesus was and that moment came where she just broke open the box? Come on, live that moment with me. She just broke open the box and $40,000 worth of perfume just runs all over Jesus, just wasting it on Jesus. I doubt very many of us in the room this morning put, our, put one year's salary in the offering today. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. And honestly, I really don't want to make this message about money. There's so much more to giving to Jesus than just money. But my point is this. Most of us would have said to her, oh, oh don't, don't break that box. If you and I were in that moment, don't break that. Oh, my goodness, don't break that box. Because you'll be, you, you're going to, all of it right here. Just open the, the top and put a few drops on him. That will be good enough. And the conviction of my heart today, church, is this. I am so used to giving good enough. But I'm not that used to giving with nothing left. I absolutely will give good enough. But I'm challenging you as I have challenged myself. Remember, this is all a, a, just an, a, a look at what's happened in my own heart. I challenge you as I challenge myself this morning from the lady in our passage. There are moments when we absolutely must give to Jesus with nothing left. But Pastor Josh, I only get two weeks vacation and... Really? You want me to give that on a mission trip to Honduras next summer? Yes, with nothing left. But Pastor Josh, I, I can't waste my vacation time. I can't just throw away my summer. No way. Yes, with nothing left. Can I just tell you, when your heart responds like that, I just can't do this, I can't, that would be, when your heart responds like that, you're being like the disciples and not like Jesus. Romans 6 is an amazing contrast. Paul goes back and forth between the old life, the new life, the old life, the new life. You were a slave of iniquity, but now you're a slave to God. And in verse 19, Paul basically says, he basically says this. If you really look at it, and I looked at it in several different versions, he basically says, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to dumb this thing down so that you won't miss it because you're, you're really not getting it. Because uh, I, I, want you to, I want you to really see, I want you to really know, he's saying to the Romans, what, what this Christianity thing is really all about. So I, I'm going to put it in a way that, that you can, it's probably not really totally correct, but, but you will understand it this way. And he's very straightforward about it. And here's what he says in Romans 6, verse 19. He says, because of the, of the weakness of your human nature, which is a nice way of saying because you're clueless, I am using the illustration of slavery. 
Whether or not, I mean, that, that's what I'm going to use. I'm going to use the illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. Let me tell you what happens in my life. Most people that I encounter or talk to, most of them know I've spent a lot of time in music and I'm a musician. And my staff knows there's nothing much more offensive to me, whether it should be or shouldn't be, than someone who's saying something to me. And if I'm not responding the way they think I should respond, then invariably the conversation goes like this. You know, Dan, and they're talking about some concept, talk, 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 talk. You know, um, he doesn't seem to be getting it. Talk, talk, talk. You know, it's like in an orchestra. Or it's like in music. And I finally decided, you know, folks, I can understand something outside music. I know it's a shock, but I can understand. Well, that's what Paul's saying here. I'm going to put this in a way you can understand it. And here's what he said. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness. That's what you did. Which led ever deeper into sin. That's what your old life was. And he uses this metaphor or this concept of, of slavery to talk about Talk about it. You let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which just led even deeper into sin. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteousness or to, yeah, to righteous living so that you will become holy. Again, the metaphor using slave because they could understand that. Some people might want to argue being slave to righteous living. But previously you were slaves to impurity and lawlessness. But now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you will become holy. Here's what he was saying. Think about how you used to think about your weekends when you were a sinner in your old life. When that clock hit 5 o'clock at your job, your stuff was packed and you were all ready to go. You were going to hit the club. You were going to cash the check. You were going to get it all together. And oh, baby, here we go. That was it. I'm out all night seeing my friends, uh, get up Saturday morning, more stuff with friends, going to the gym, going to work out, going for a jog. I can't wait to get back to the club Saturday night. Sunday morning, wake up, read the paper, have your Starbucks. And then Sunday night came, and are you ready for some football? And then, and then you were blowing and going. But something happens when we get saved. Have you noticed this? Here's what happens when we get saved. We get tired. You going to church? <sighs> Jesus may have come into your heart, but you can't show up because you need family time so that the kids can watch you watch TV. That's your family time. <laughs> oh, it's getting bad in here. Yeah. <laughs> because you're tired. Serve, oh my goodness, serve with what? Serve. And here's what Paul says. You want to do this Christian thing right? With the same intensity and the same way you used to do all that with your friends and the clubs and all that stuff you did, you take that same energy and fire and you bring that into the house of God. You want to know how to give? You can shout and scream for the cowboys, but you get to church and you look like a mummy. God says, that's not the way I created you. You were born to praise the Lord. If you can scream here, you can scream there. If you can shout for the rangers, if you, you can worship God who has done everything for you. It's time to break the box of extravagance, church. Number three. Talking about the act of the woman, Matthew 26. 
It was giving despite what anyone else said. She was giving despite what anybody else thought or said. She couldn't care less what the 12 disciples said when they said, what a waste. Who cares what the 12 disciples said? It matters what the one voice says is who's the one who created the heavens and the earth. Listen, young people to me, listen to this old pastor. I don't care how cool that group is in school. If they're saying to you, what, you're still a virgin? What, you're not smoking weed? What, you're, you're not, what? don't you know what we think about people who don't do this? Who cares what they think? If he says save yourself until marriage, guess what? I'm going with him. Until you can create a planet, until you can die on a cross, until you can raise from the dead, I'll then I'll come to your side. But until then, I'm going with Jesus all the way. So maybe the 12 did a little price check on the perfume, click, 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 and determined, oh my goodness, what a waste. Jesus says, don't believe that price tag or pay any attention to it at all. My price tag is this. Dear lady, you have done something so significant today that you are fulfilling prophecy. Jesus said, this is so, what you have done today by pouring yourself on me, this is so huge that every time this gospel is preached for millennia to come, they're gonna talk about you. Essentially, he's saying this, ma'am, you and I today are fulfilling prophecy. They say that this perfume is so expensive, it found in the Himalayas in Asia. It was such an intense, potent fragrance that when it was on you, it could last for up to 10 days. And she dumps it on him. She lavished it on him with nothing held back. And here's an interesting thing as I start to bring this to a close, which is not your cue to leave. Some people wait for me to say that so they can leave. Some have gone so far as to say this. Listen carefully. Listen, listen. Considering the possible timeline of the gospel, could he have been walking down the Via Dolorosa on the way to the cross, carrying that cross before it was handed off to the other gentleman? And he had it right here. And he went, if she left it all, then I can do the same thing. I smell her praise. Could he have been in the Garden of Gethsemane, trying to get through the hardest moment of his ministry on earth? And as he's praying, oh, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you. I've heard it said that the sense of smell and scent is the most potent form of memory. When you smell something, it brings back the pictures, it brings back the stories, it brings back the memories. Have you ever been walking along and, and, and gotten a whiff of something, hopefully, hopefully pleasant, and it takes you back to a memory, a place, or a person? My dad passed away in August of 2000. But he wore a certain kind of cologne. And I've had many times in the last 16, 17 years, I've been walking along or been in some place and just 
breathed in and all of a sudden that came and was on someone else. And it put a smile on my face and sometimes it brought a tear. Just saying in my own heart, in the quiet of my own heart, my dad smelled like that. I'm not saying this is in the text, folks. But I think it's possible that when praying in the garden, Jesus said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And it will be worth it all. I smell her praise. And in the backdrop of this whole story, after the disciples did all their criticizing, I told you I was going to bring in that first part of that 14th verse. We find Judas, who goes out and gives up Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It's debatable, but I'm not far off. Year's wage for the woman, 30 pieces of silver for Judas is about 15 bucks. Judas would have been one of the disciples in that room that day when she walked in screaming, what a waste, what a waste. And yet he sold Jesus for 15 bucks. To try to find significance, to try to prove he was somebody, to try to find power, and I'm here to tell you this morning, there is no other place that you can find it but in the one who is asking you this morning to break the box of significance. Bow your head with me for prayer. We've been challenged by your word this morning. I have been challenged all this week by it. But Lord, I want it to be said of me and I know it's true in the hearts of men and women in this house today. That we've come to pour our praise on you. Like the oil from Mary's alabaster box. We want to praise you with extravagance. We know that means that on the days when it's difficult. But you're still worthy of the extravagance of our praise. Lord, we want to praise you and worship you with nothing held back. Forgive us for the times when we have thought good enough was going to be okay. Come to a service and give a golf clap for Jesus. Lord, let our hearts resonate again with the understanding that you gave it all for us. Oh, Heavenly Father. You didn't even spare your own son. You didn't even hold him back. But you gave him to us for God so loved the world. God so loved us with an extravagant love. But you gave your only begotten son that whoever would simply say yes this morning to Jesus, whoever would say yes, I want to follow him, yes, I have made a mess of my own life, but I'm giving it all to him today. Giving it all to him. Let us worship you with nothing held back. And Lord, let us worship you with little to no regard of what anyone else thinks. Their opinion doesn't matter. What matters, Lord, 
is that today you receive all the praise and the honor and the glory because you're the only one who deserves it forever and ever and ever. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand together, church, this morning. Can I just ask this? I don't know if anyone's heard a word that I've said today. Maybe, yes, maybe no, I don't know. I'm just asking, is there anyone in the house today who by uplifted hand, this is not necessarily a call for salvation. It's just a call to say, who in the house today would say, Pastor, I am challenged that I want to be one of those who gives lavishly and extravagantly of myself and my praise to the Lord Jesus. Is that anyone in the house today? Anyone in the house today? Father, we are yours to command where you lead us. And again, forgive us for those times when we have held back. And I ask that you will stir up our affections for you today, oh God. Stir up our affections for you. That our love for you will be even greater than it ever has been before. That we'll get so sick and tired of the mundane. We'll get so sick and tired of the blasé. We'll get so sick and tired of the customary and the usual and the good enough. That it will be putrefying to us and we don't want to live that way any longer. We want to live extravagantly. Giving of ourselves extravagantly to the one who has given extravagantly to us.